This show is all about the people behind the science of biotechnology and medical devices. Through the stories of the people, I hope that Lab Rats to Unicorns is able to describe the transformative process of you know, how an idea starts in the lab and eventually becomes a life-saving treatment or a product that, that helps patients with diseases. Life-saving. Today, I am really excited to introduce our next guest, Dr. Charlie Polsky. Um, he's a longtime friend, and I'm really excited to hear a little bit more about his journey. I think our audience will be really excited to hear his background, kind of what he's working on now, um, his view of the future with relationships to the focus around biotech innovation, leveraging his years of experience investing in biotechnology companies, and more recently operating those companies in the roles that he'll talk about here on the show. So welcome to the show, Charlie. Thank you. It's great to be here, and thank you for asking me. No, it's a pleasure. And I just diving a little bit uh, deeper into the introduction, Charlie is the executive chairman of Bolden Therapeutics and the CEO of William Harris Investors, as well as a corporate board member of nearly a dozen companies and a member of the investment committee for the University of Chicago's Innovation Fund. From mathematics at Yale to medicine at the University of Chicago, Charlie developed a unique skill set to contribute to his success in finance, a destination as diverse as his path to it. In that realm, he's navigated a collection of entrepreneurial and investing experiences, transitioning his focus between early and late stage pharmaceutical companies. And again, in this episode, we're going to get more details surrounding the motivations, inspirations, and passion that has been guiding Charlie's journey from start to where we are now. And, th and through that, the process involved in investing and bringing pharmaceutical companies to market from the perspective of especially you know, an investor is really highlighted in, in his journey. So, so welcome again, Charlie, to the show. And maybe I'll kick off with a question if that's okay. And that would be, you know, you, you started your career from an education perspective, getting your MD, and then you focused on applying that knowledge to investing in life sciences and other companies. What got you interested in this path? And were there early events in your life or people that influenced your trajectory? Yeah, so that's a great question. If you go all the way back to uh, when I was a kid in high school, I actually was one of those kids who was sick in high school. I had a bone tumor in my hip. And my parents took me all over New York looking for a specialist who knew what it was. It was one of those rare diseases. And eventually we ended up at Mass General up in Boston where uh, an orthopedic surgeon by the name of Michael Ehrlich uh, made the correct diagnosis. I ended up having surgery at Mass General and recovered there. But it required a prolonged period of hospitalization. And he would come in every day to say hi and see who had sent me uh, cookies overnight. And I was one of those kids who was very interested in math and science and puzzling. And I always had a Rubik's Cube or some other cube you would have to you know, puzzle on as, as I was passing the days. And before I, I got discharged home, he said, I, I noticed you like solving puzzles. How would you like to come and work in my lab? And so I ended up spending several summers, both in high school and then when I got to Yale, doing research for him. And he became a mentor for me throughout my career. And um, just somebody that I admired so much, he always asked the question, why? He wanted to understand the underpinnings uh, when he was confronted with a new problem. 
And he was somebody that I always really looked up to take apart a, a puzzle or any kind of a problem and try and understand the fundamental building blocks of it and then to solve it. And I've always tried to bring that to bear in my own career. And I would say that uh, in discussing mentors, another one of my most influential mentors was my, my grandfather, a fellow by the name of Irving Harris, who was a businessman here in Chicago. And when I graduated with my math degree, he asked me to come out and to come work for him in the family business, which I did. And uh, I learned... And that's couple, William Harris Investors, That's correct? William Harris Investors, yeah. and it's named after his father. One of my earliest memories of working in the office was he said to me, how'd you like to go with me? We're going to take a look at A.C. Nielsen. And so I knew that they did the television set box rating system. And so we drive out and there's an elderly gentleman waiting there to greet us. And he says, hi, I'm A.C. Nielsen. <laughs> and I thought to myself, oh, well, this is how my grandfather does it old school. <laughs> but again, it's the same principle. It's the, it's the finding the fundamental building blocks of a problem or of an institution and starting from the ground up and, and trying to base your assumption, not on someone else's assumption, but on the individual facts of the- of the building it organically yourself. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that one of the lessons I learned from my grandfather and have internalized for my career is that you spend your lifetime building a name for yourself. This is true if you work in business, this is true if you're a teacher or a doctor, you can destroy your own reputation in a day or less by being unethical or dishonest or otherwise disappointing someone's expectations. So I've always tried to uh, maintain my, my reputation by going above and beyond what other people expect. And deals come and go, but you, know, you only have one you and you don't want to really destroy that. What was that like, though, going and working for your grandfather's company. And was that intimidating to begin with when you think about those expectations that were set for the family name in a way? It was extremely intimidating. And, um, and I knew that he loved me and, and he was a loving <laughs> grandfather. But of course, he, he happened to have been a brilliant businessman. And so he was one of those people where you would always worry before you open your mouth, you didn't want to say something stupid. But I learned so much uh, working with him. And I was very fortunate. At the time I went out to join him, he was turning 80, and he ended up staying the head of that office for another 10 years. Wow. And so it was in 1992, which was three years later, that I, I told him I needed a hiatus because I wanted to go to medical school. And so I then spent the next four years at the University of Chicago in medical school, and then I completed my residency, which was another three years. So it wasn't until 2002 when I'd completed my training. He said to me, enough playing around. You need to come back to the office. Back to the office. That's great. Yeah. Well, and to what degree was that early experience then in working with uh, your grandfather and the rest of the team at William Harris Investors that kind of shaped your thinking coming out of medical school? Because in many ways, you know, as you entered medical school, did you have an intent going into that, that you would come back ultimately and apply that knowledge to, you know, kind of investing and, and building companies? Or did you go into it thinking that you'd be practicing medicine? What were your thoughts as you entered? Yeah, I'd like to say that I had a grand plan, but that wouldn't be true. <laughs> when I went to medical school, it was my intention to be a clinician. And uh, I ended up meeting my wife at the University of Chicago, and we matched together and did our residencies. And as we were finishing up, I was very interested in working in an ICU. I loved just being able to help 
patients who were most at need, who had the, the sickest of the sick. And my wife at the same time was preparing to do a fellowship in geriatrics. And at that point, we had a little baby and another one on the way. And I said to her, well, this is the opportunity that was afforded her was just too good to pass up. And so at that point, I said I was going to stay home as a stay-home dad. After a couple of years of that, I started working my way back to the office. And so um, when I rejoined in 2002, it was as a biotech analyst, and things then progressed from there. No, that's great. And, you know, a quick uh, fact on that, too, speaking of intimidation, and you wouldn't remember this, Charlie, most likely, but, you know, we started a company called Medichem Life Sciences uh, back in the late 80s. And we ultimately were able to endeavor to pursue an IPO. And, uh, you know, the IPO process getting listed on NASDAQ is a very complicated, time-consuming and expensive process. But the way it begins is you file a registration statement with the SEC. You have to wait for comments. You have to get investment banks to kind of sponsor you and willing to kind of lead the transaction. In our case, it was UBS and Chase and William Blair that ultimately led our uh, IPO. And um, the way it works, though, is once you kind of are able to get out there with your prospectus, you get a chance to go on a roadshow. And the roadshow involves meeting with, you know, upwards of 80, 90 investors. And usually, although it's a little different today because everything is virtual, the way that uh, our IPOs were done back then were to actually go and meet physically with investors, 30-minute meetings, You'd be in and out, and then you'd hop in a car and you'd go to the next meeting. We started in Europe. You usually go to cities like uh, London and and Geneva and uh, and maybe Frankfurt, and then coming back to the U.S. But the the point of the story here is, and, and I'll get to the point, <laughs> <laughs> is that there was a meeting on the books with William Harris Investors, and one of my first roadshow meetings was with you, and it was intimidating because everybody kept talking about now. Most of the investors that you're talking to aren't going to be as smart as Charlie because Charlie's an MD. So he knows a lot about the science and he's going to ask you a lot of questions about the science. So anyway, quick fact there. I mean, fast forward to today and I'm talking to you, you know, honored to be talking to you, but feeling more like a peer and a friend. Absolutely. The, the, the beginning of our relationship was, I was a lot more nerve wracked well, uh, going into that. Well, you jog my memory about a, a story from a similar area era, um, which was we had the CEO of an HMO in our office at William Harris Investors. And somebody was asking him how they made their money. And he said, well, let's say that there is a statin drug and 30% of our patients need to take it. Well, we know that we have a cheaper statin drug and we know that their doctor is out on the golf course today because it's Wednesday. So we can do that substitution and their doctor doesn't know and he doesn't really care. And so everybody around the office, and it was our boardroom, hmm. everybody in the office except for the CEO knew that I was a doctor. And you could see people physically sliding down <laughs> in their chairs, trying to get under the table. <laughs> because when I let them have it, I let them have it with both barrels. Yeah. And I said, how dare you? Yeah. you know? And uh, anyway, it was the impetus, that meeting, that I went to the head of our HR department. I said, I need new business cards today. And they need to say MD on them because yeah. I don't want to spring on anyone sure. a surprise that I have this medical background. I don't want to be condescended to, mm -hmm. and I don't want to lord it over people. 
But for the purposes of us avoiding uncomfortable situations, full when disclosure. We, full disclosure. Yeah. And ever since then, I, you know, I've always kind of, I tell people that up front. Yeah. It helps contextualize the level at which we're going to have a discussion. Yeah. So. Absolutely. Yeah. No. And again, the bankers were fully informed and they informed me. And so going in, I had that full disclosure and um, the rest is history. And so. then afterwards, <laughs> you're like, that guy? That guy was the doctor? <laughs> well, you know, but maybe you could, for uh, for the benefit of the audience, as we, you know, I want to focus on the conversation as we move forward here around kind of where you are now, where you're going, but maybe just to kind of put a, a postscript on your experience at William Harris, can you just kind of talk about your arc there and kind of, you know, from when you started to ultimately, you know, you became the CEO. I mean, that's quite a journey. If you could just talk a little bit about your experience and what uh, what that was like. Certainly. So I would say that uh, when I started working as a biotech analyst, I was very taken by the notion of having a career that enabled me to utilize the skills that I had developed as a physician, but also then hand-in-hand hand with uh, utilizing the skills that I had learned at the family office in my previous stint and by being a mathematician as an undergraduate, I enjoyed the investing side of it and understanding the science and reading the journals and speaking with the chief scientific officers. Over time, when I, I guess, was promoted from being an analyst to a portfolio manager, and then I had to think not just about the individual equities or the individual. We, we ran both public company portfolios as well as portfolios of private biotech companies. And as we'll discuss, I think, later on, there are different skill sets to evaluate a private company versus a public company. Uh, and then eventually becoming the head of equities is still a different skill set. And then you're becoming a manager of people and um, you're trying to look at, you know, you want to diversify risk across your portfolio. Um, and then in 2015, my, my partner in business this whole time had been my twin brother, Jack, uh, who had gone to Kellogg, and our grandfather had entrusted uh, the business to the two of us upon his retirement. And, and Jack was, he was ideally suited for uh, the CEO role, and I think he really enjoyed it. And then in 2015, uh, he was diagnosed with cancer and had to step down. And so at that point, I stepped in for him as the WHI CEO. And so I spent the next four years, four and a half years as CEO, managing a staff of 40 people, overseeing our budget, et cetera. While at the same time, I had some legacy commitments on the private company side, serving in board roles or executive chair roles. And I tried to balance that. I would say that I learned something from every different position I held at WHI. Eventually, I decided that I wanted to go back to the more entrepreneurial side of investing and, and within the life sciences. And so that was my impetus for stepping down as CEO in 2020. I had some other opportunities that I was very interested in. That's a great story. And I think very formative as to positioning you now for your next steps. And what would you say were some of the key characteristics you looked for in either private or public biotech investing that kind of maybe that you were able to kind of live by as you made a decision to either invest or not invest in, in those companies as they came through? I would say that there are common features to private and public companies that I find compelling. It starts for me with underlying fundamental science that I can wrap my arms around and that passes what I would call the sniff test. 
sometimes things that sound too good to be true are. Right. And there's the flavor of the day. And very often, if all you do is, there's a saying in medicine, don't just do something, stand there. As opposed to don't just stand there, do something. Yeah, right. yeah. But, but sometimes the best thing you can do is uh, hit the pause button in your assessment rather than reacting. And I find that good foundational science underpins good biotech companies. And beyond that, you need to have a management team that has attention to detail, that is not interested in taking shortcuts, that takes the long view, that's creative and resourceful, and, uh, and also companies that are undaunted by setbacks. Because if there's anything you and I both know in the world of biotech is there are going to be setbacks. Yes. Yeah. So resilience. Resilience. Is 100%. a key feature. Yeah. Of a kind of a, the, that management team you're, that you're looking for. And maybe more deeply, would you say that, I, just curious, since it's a biotech company and its science as its underpinning, did you rule out or rule in investments based on a CEO with a background that was either in science or not in science? I'm just curious, did you ever find that more successful companies were led by a scientist or not? Or uh, any, any thoughts on that? I think that a successful biotech company can have either a good scientist at the realm or a non-scientific person. Part of what makes someone successful in the CEO role is knowing your own limitations. Mm -hmm. And I believe that it favors people who don't have big egos. If, if what people really want to do is put their individual stamp on the project, mm -hmm. oftentimes they'll end up missing out on opportunities because those opportunities may rely on skill sets that they don't have. Interesting. Yeah. So almost like team building, a really, really important characteristic. You need to have the humility yeah. so that to acknowledge when you are not well-suited for a particular project. Yeah. And then you need to find somebody who is well-suited and then you can't feel inferior to that person because they're better at doing that particular thing than you are. Yeah, no, that's that's really interesting. And, and similar to what my experience has been too and just observing successful companies and those that kind of get, get hung up along the way. You know, if you look at your kind of transition then, you know, investing primarily in companies as an investor, but over the past five years or so, starting to really ratchet up your involvement in both private investing and beginning to become more involved on the operations of these companies. Can you tell us a little bit more about how being involved in the operations is different from uh, or similar to the kind of the investing that you were doing prior to that? Yeah, I think that's a great question. It's it's non-duplicative, uh, the, the determination of whether, say, a public company that's formed and a non-going you know, concern makes a good investment versus a startup. So when you come across a publicly traded company, you're making a determination on their fundamental science, on their path to approval, on their addressable market, on their competitors in the market space, on their CEO, their management team, on the strength of their IP. But you have one decision to make. You take it all in and then you're making a determination. Is that something I want to invest in? Yes or no? When you find a, a fledgling company, you're trying to decide, is this something that I can work with? Is this something where I can add value? Is this something where I can help bring out the strengths of the scientific founder? Is this person coachable? Is this a company that can raise money? Uh, oftentimes when you have a public company, 
you know what, what their balance sheet is. And so you know how far they're going to get on their dime before they need to go out ringing for more money. One of the things to have a, a private company CEO who's going to be successful, that person cannot be bashful about dialing for dollars. Yeah. You just can't be. Yeah. And so I know people who are very capable, but I know that they won't be good private company CEOs because they feel yeah. bashful about going out and asking for money. Well, you're never gonna you're never gonna make it to the promised land yeah. if you can't fund your discovery. Got to smile and dial. Exactly. Well, if you look at then kind of the current plate that you've got in front of you now, present day, can you share a little bit more about the companies that you're currently involved in, and just a little bit about the characteristics of those companies? Certainly, I, I have three private companies right now where I would say I spend the majority of my time uh, and in no particular order because I feel very excited about each of them. The first one is a company fledgling out of Brown by the name of Bolden Therapeutics. And uh, the scientific co-founder is a fellow by the name of Justin Fallon. Justin and I had worked together on a board of a predecessor company of his called Tyverson that was developing a drug for Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Hmm. And I called him up about two years ago. We were just catching up. And he said, it's such a coincidence that you just called. I have this new area of discovery. I'm extremely excited about it. And basically, they had constructed a mouse model based on an area of research in his lab that by knocking down a particular pathway, they were able to stimulate new neuronal growth in the hippocampus mm. of these mice. Mm. And they then uh, were able to measure increased neurogenesis in the brain under a microscope. But I think what got him excited and certainly got me excited over the phone was that these mice appeared to be smarter than your average mouse. Okay. And so they were testing them in mazes or I should say a novel object location study. It's a validated study to assess a mouse's ability to remember what it's seen in the past. Okay. And they did significantly better. And so the, uh, the CEO of that company is a medical student, fellow by the name of Johnny Page, who I was very excited when I started talking to Johnny about his interest in the company. And I stepped in as executive board chair. And for me, it's a mentoring role. This, uh, this young medical student has all of the skills that you would ever want to see in an outstanding CEO. And I think he's going to do great things, whether he chooses a path in medicine or in industry or somewhere in between. But of course, being a young person, he doesn't have all the business experience. And so part of what got me super excited about Bolden was the core science. Part of what got me excited was the team. And part of what got me excited was the very large and important addressable, addressable markets within Alzheimer's or brain injury, sure. et cetera. And so things there have gone about as well as you could have expected over the last year and a half. And uh, I'd say this next year could be very exciting for it. Absolutely. Well, what a game changer if that continues to show promise as it continues to progress kind of through preclinical development and ideally into the clinic and you know, such an important area um, of unmet need, as we know. Exactly. Uh, and then just to continue on with uh, some of my other board activities, I'm also on the board of a company uh, that's located in Northbrook called Impossible Objects. And it's a high-speed 3D printing company. It's differentiated in that most 3D technologies are elaborating whatever the material is they're building out of using a nozzle, like a printhead. And Impossible Objects has come up with a quite differentiated technique that's 
innately much faster. So they actually are putting a substrate through, uh, much like you would put a piece of paper through a printer and then stacking the papers. Each paper has been essentially printed onto. And so when you, when you stack the papers up, you have a, a 3D image of whatever your very complex part might be. The difference between impossible objects and most other 3D printing companies so that they can print out of carbon fiber, they can print out of fiberglass, they can print out of Kevlar. They have very high detail in the precision of the pieces. And just because they have a variety of different substrates, they can then address many different applications in industry, aerospace, automotive, what have you. Sure. And uh, the CEO of that company is a fellow by the name of Gintras Vaishnis, who's sister and I actually went to college together, and he's another outstanding CEO. So I'm very excited to be involved there. Yeah, very cool. And I, I bet it's kind of refreshing, too, just to kind of work a different part of your brain, too. I mean, it's a different application, you know. So, um, And yet, I would imagine some of the fundamental principles that you are employing all the time with biotech operations and investing, I bet there's a lot of overlap that, on the other hand, gives you the ability to really add value, like you said. I like to think I have an advanced degree in common sense, <laughs> and sometimes that's what's lacking. Yeah, you know, and I don't mean to besmirch either uh, any of the individuals I've mentioned involved here, but I think sometimes you just need to take a step back from whatever the problem is you're looking at, and try and consider uh, real-world solutions. And I also think that sometimes if you take that step back, uh, you're able to identify problems before they are right in your face. And that gives you more lead time to try and address them. Yeah, awesome. And then I, I would also say I've, I've recently um, been in discussions with Reacts, which is a company that I believe you guys are invested in. And I'm very excited uh, by that underlying technology. It's out of the University of Chicago, uh, out of Ray Mollering's lab, using proteomic platform to discover the metabolic underpinnings of cellular biology. And what I love about this company is that it's a platform as opposed to an individual drug or an individual compound. And um, I think that it seems to me like it has very far-reaching implications over the next couple of years. And so um, I'm very excited to be involved in that one. Yeah, no, likewise, we're excited to be invested in that company, both in terms of our enthusiasm for Ray, but also the, the technology, as you mentioned, kind of being able to kind of go after previously undruggable, you know, biological targets makes it, makes it exciting with this platform. You know, as you look ahead, what are some of the areas of biotech that you find interesting from a science perspective? You know, some investors are very focused on like one therapeutic area or one modality, cell therapy, you know, small molecule antibodies, for example, being examples of how focused one can be if you're investing in a, a technical field like biotech. But maybe you could just comment on some of the things you find interesting in biotech right now and a little bit about your style for um, either variety or focus, I guess. Right. Well, I would say that I am platform agnostic. I am disease agnostic. It's certainly the case that certain types of drugs have a lower hurdle for approval than others. One I always like to point out when I'm trying to make the case is that if you can find an antibiotic that kills E. coli in a culture cell, it's probably going to kill that E. coli in your body. And so the issue there is making sure it's non-toxic. But I think that infectious disease drugs have a lower hurdle than, say, some others. And that said, I, I think that um, 
I'm always looking for something, as I said earlier, that is has solid scientific underpinnings, large addressable markets, et cetera. I think that uh, with AAV, no associated vectors, being able to deliver genes and CRISPR, gene therapy, personalized medicine, these are all going to play out over the next many, many years. I read somewhere that Stan Crook, who was the founder of ISIS, which became Ionis, in stepping down as CEO, he actually had gotten a letter from a family whose loved one had, it was like a one in a million, one in 10 million, you know, inborn genetic yeah, defect. He actually created a drug for one person, an antisense drug. Okay. Now, I don't think that there's a business in that, and this is all in a foundation, but it, it really highlights the broader point that we are moving from one size fits all to more and more directed therapies. And they're no longer operating at the disease level or at the organ level. They're operating now at the metabolic pathway or at the gene level. And so I think that um, looking forward, there's gonna be as much energy and time is spent right now on biomarkers. I think that that's gonna be even increasingly important, understanding the molecular underpinnings for disease. And you won't say anymore, you know, we have a patient here with breast cancer or we have a, a patient here with colon cancer. It's gonna be, we have a, this person has a HER2 or this person, and it's gonna be more of the molecular markers. And you may find that different diseases that look very different if you're looking at an organ or a, a human level, they appear disparate and you would think would have different treatments. It may turn out that they end up having the same treatment yeah. simply because the same molecular mechanisms are at work. Yeah. I would say in terms of my own interest from a disease perspective, you know, having lost my brother to cancer this past summer, I remain very interested in helping to advance oncology drugs to market. And I think that that's something that will persist. Yeah, no. And we'll miss Jack. He's, you know, everybody I talk to about you and your family, back to your name and, you know, that recognition. I know Jack was a great leader. And so we'll, we'll, we all miss him already. Um, When you think about Chicago, so you spent most of your career based here. And certainly investing all around the world, but you know your your home and your your focus has been Chicago. Can you comment around you know kind of what's changing here as it relates to biotech ecosystem, and what you think Chicago's opportunity could be as you uh, as you look at the next decade or so? Absolutely, and I, I think sometimes um, in our own individual experiences and the ones that are most formative. Sometimes it's our past successes that drive us, and sometimes it's our past challenges that drive us. And if you think back to the 1970s, Professor Goldwasser at the University of Chicago was developing and isolating EPO, erythropoietin, which is made in the kidneys and it stimulates uh, red blood cell growth. And he went to the University of Chicago, powers that be, and he wanted to file IP on it. Long story short, it didn't make a lot of sense at the university level to do that. He had a consulting agreement with Amgen. Amgen ended up, of course, developing Epigen. And I read recently that in the lifetime of the drug, it's generated $56 billion, with a B, right. dollars in sales. Yeah. Obviously, that left a pretty bad taste in the mouth of the University of Chicago, letting that IP go. And then I think, uh, you know, with Northwestern and Lyrica, which really put Northwestern on the map in terms of a generator of valuable biological IP. I think notice has been served, right? And and so now you have not only, you know, the Polsky Center at the University of Chicago, there's Chicago Innovation Mentors, there's the University of Chicago Innovation Fund. Uh, as I understand it, at Northwestern, you can now get a master's degree in biotechnology. And when you think about it, 
I mean, what you're doing here with Portal, this is the next evolution in the process of taking intellectual property from a bench top, putting it in the hands of an entrepreneur, and now you're giving them wet lab space uh, funding and back office support. So I think uh, the future for the Midwest and for Chicago is extremely bright. I think it helps the universities attract and retain the best scientists who basically want to know not only that they have a place to think and explore and develop their discoveries, but now they can connect the dots on how that discovery is implemented and commercialized. And so I think it, it's going to it's a virtuous cycle. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. And I think if you look at the investments that the universities have made here in the region, um, it's all with the intent to attract and retain that faculty innovator that, you know, I would say the phenotype is historically more present in places like Stanford and MIT. And over the course of the past decade, that talent now is being distributed across a much broader ecosystem than you know, the traditional generators of that intellectual property. But I think the other thing that's changed here uh, at the macro level is there's quite a bit of capital that's been raised by dedicated life sciences VCs that are investing in talent teams and infrastructure in places that are emerging, like Chicago and, and other places. And so I think you have a really fertile ground then in the next 10 years to see Kind of what happens in other ecosystems that always had the raw materials, like Chicago has always had, like you mentioned. I mean, the Goldwasser story is well known. You know, even George Rathman coming out of Abbott and going out to Thousand Oaks, you know, that's really a, a key driver for, you know, what can happen uh, with one faculty member, one innovation, one idea. You know, even back to Lyrica, Rick Silverman, I mean, one person and the impact that he's had on his discovery has been just enormous. And, and so I think that, you know, the regions around the Midwest, I think can benefit from that same type of innovator, but for the future. And so it'll be interesting to see. And I know that we're really excited at Portal to be part of it and kind of be in the midst of that and try to help catalyze more of that to, to occur. What, if you look at the pathway for you for the future, I know you're involved, like you mentioned in the University of Chicago Innovation Fund, you're, you're part of many private company startups now here, not just in the region, but around the country. What are some of the things that you think are going to be important to you as you move forward, as you select projects to be engaged in stepping forward? And I know we'll wrap up in just a few minutes, but that's kind of one penultimate question I wanted to ask of you. I would say that when I engage in new projects, I want to find projects where, number one, I feel like I have something to lend there are things that I see. I saw a project recently uh, that was from the Innovation Fund, and uh, it was a young company developing quantum computing and quantum repeaters and single photon emitters. And from all I could gather, it was disruptive and important, but nothing that I knew about. And I read up on it, and I realized I had no value I could add. And I tried to introduce them to people that might be able to make an investment. or So I, I would say that uh, for me, when I look at projects, one of the first questions I ask is, what can I add here? And if I can't add anything, then, you know, I try to be polite about it, sure. but I just, I'm, I'm up front with that. Yeah. Is, the, is it solving an important problem? So um, statins are great. Uh, I think there's six or seven of them now. Yeah. So the eighth statin, I'm sure it'll be just as good and maybe cause a little less muscle ache. 
that's not the sort of thing that I'm interested in. So as I look forward, it has to be something where I can add value, something that addresses an important problem, and something that I will find engaging, you know, because I'm, I'm very fortunate these days in that I come across more opportunities than I could possibly take on. And that allows me to be choosy. And I feel very fortunate for that. But I try to choose wisely. Special thanks to our sponsors, World Business Chicago. Connect with World Business Chicago, the city's economic development agency, and discover more about the city's vibrant life science ecosystem. From Chicago's global universities and research institutions to its diverse pipeline of skilled talent and vibrant neighborhoods, as well as its cutting edge lab and office space, Chicago has the fuel for your company's success. There's no better place to build a life science company than in Chicago. I know you got a great family too, you're growing kids and, you know, just on the personal side, are there any things that kind of motivate you outside of your, your day job, if you will? And what are some of the things that you find kind of um, important to you as you, you think about kind of your balancing mechanisms? So family is very important to me. I have four children. I have uh, my oldest who just graduated from college and just took a job. He, he graduated with a degree in mechanical engineering from Yale and used that to join a biotech startup. Oh, wow. And, you know, proud papa doesn't begin to describe uh, he's adding a lot of value and he's finding it to be very exciting and engaging work. My second son is a college senior and I now have a University of Chicago maroon. My oh, daughter wow. just started as a, as a freshman and she's on their swim team. Oh, that's great. And then my youngest is in 10th grade, but you know, I try to, I try to lead by example. I think we all do to, to some extent. I try to do work that I think somehow advances us as a society some way, in a yeah. small way. And, um, you know, we actually, a long time ago, when, when the kids were very little, my wife and I decided that we were going to come up with a family credo. We felt like we need to have a family credo. All right. And so we settled on Polskis don't quit. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And so we taught that to our kids, whatever it was. Yeah. Polskis don't quit. Yeah. I don't want to do this. Polskis don't quit. And so... I would say that um, between, you know, watching my own children grow up and, and mentoring other young adults, which for me is very important and will always be important, that beyond whatever we do ourselves in our professional endeavors, uh, the extent to which we can serve as mentors and help the next generation, to me, that always seems like um, very noble work. It's very interesting that your mantra is, you know, Polskis don't quit, because you mentioned kind of one of the key traits that you look for in great leaders and great CEOs as being resilience, especially in biotech, in the pathways that, you know, you're involved in and really in life, you know, resilience is such a key attribute. I just think that's kind of interesting. Well, I guess my closing question would be, you know, one of the things we try to do on the show is really try to expose, you know, that people can come from so many different diverse backgrounds, you know, whether it's uh, gender diversity, ethnic diversity, functional skills, you know, experience, old, young, that, you know, there's a potential path in biotech for many folks that maybe aren't even thinking about that as a potential pathway for them. And so in closing, kind of what, what would you have to say to kind of the next generation in the audience that we're speaking to around and, and encouraging them, you know, kind of around what, what would be your thoughts on the opportunity for careers in, in life sciences? Um, and what would, you, what would you say to them to kind of inspire them? That's a great question. I think that 
There's so many opportunities within the realm of biotechnology or within the realm of entrepreneurship in general. And that I think uh, sometimes people are daunted by the prospect of, oh, I could never do that. I don't know. I wouldn't know where to begin. And my wife, Isabel, who's a pretty talented long distance runner, has a aphorism about running marathons, which is you have to eat the elephant one bite at a time. And that's her mentality when, when she races. She, she doesn't run as much anymore as she used to. But so I think for young people who are embracing the notion of working in biotech, granted, you're a young person, you don't know how it works. You don't have the experience. Uh, you don't necessarily have the full skill set that you're going to need. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't start. You need to start somewhere, even if it's serving as a, you know an intern at Portal. I'm sure you guys have a lot of intern applicants. But then you can always do things offline. You can research, you can get a medical textbook, a pathology textbook. You can learn about a disease area. You can teach yourself to be an amateur specialist in something. And take the long view that for most of us, our professional careers are going to be measured, measured in decades. And I think that you're right about something you said that, you know, unfortunately, biotechnology, the executives and the senior teams at a lot of these companies do not look in their demographic like our society as a whole. Mm -hmm. And diseases affect different subgroups differently. And wouldn't it be great if in the next 10 years in Chicago, we became the city known for embracing the diversity in our biotechnology leadership that reflected the general populace. And so I would encourage people who come from underrepresented groups in particular, uh, you probably have a grandmother who has such and such a disease. And maybe there are not that many people in the general population who do, but maybe in your particular demographic, it, it occurs more frequently. Who's going to advocate for treating that disease if not somebody with your special background? And so I think that um, bringing diversity into biotechnology ranks is a very admirable goal that we should all set. And I know certainly for myself, uh, when people come to me and ask for some form of mentorship, I'm always looking to bring in people who have different backgrounds and try and lead them on a path to where they can set sail on their own and, and begin to make a difference in their own right. And if you think about the trickle down of that benefit, uh, of all the people that I've mentored over the many years I've been doing this, some of them are actually now out with careers and, yeah. and making a difference. And nothing that I do makes me nearly as proud as hearing stories of success from the people that I've worked with when they were younger. I love your philosophy and your aspirations for Chicago, being really that melting pot of the future in biotech, kind of taking the lead in that regard. And I think it's very possible. It's within reach. And I hope we can each be a part of helping that, helping that to occur. Charlie, it's been a real honor and privilege speaking with you. I really like your, your wisdom around taking the long view on things, too. And um, I, I aspire to have that same attitude. And I look forward to finding a way to continue to collaborate with you with uh, very, very uh, interesting projects that you have in front of you. But thanks for spending time with us today. Appreciate it. It's been a great pleasure speaking with you and, and reconnecting, and, um, and I hope that we'll continue to be in touch. Thanks for joining us today. It was another great episode. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with our guest today and were inspired the way I was. Looking forward to reconvening again in two weeks. Please visit our website at labratstounicorns.com. We welcome any of your 
comments, feedback, ideas. If you want me to ask certain questions of guests or you have ideas of people that we should be interviewing. That is all goodbye.